So, Jim, welcome. <coughs> Thanks for being the first person for my uh, my podcast idea that I had. Which, Pleasure, Dave. Which has been something that's been uh, annoying me for quite some time. Every time I sit around your house and we have these lengthy conversations about life, you seem to uh, dip into this incredible back catalogue of some of the most amazing stories I've heard. So simply the whole context of this was to open up a podcast or an idea of a podcast because I keep meeting wonderful people in my life and uh, I just feel as though that these ideas and these events and uh, wonderful things that have happened to people need to be recorded because after I, I mean you know not to be too morbid but after I lost my sister and then I lost my gran uh, last year I had lots of recordings from my gran of me and her talking about India and her her growing up there and leaving India and all these things have been stories I've heard my whole life and now they're gone in a, in a second they were gone so I feel as though it's really important to catalogue these things uh, for no apparent reason <laughs> I don't know you know what I mean so I think that's a fantastic idea because you know I, I'm kind of conscious of it myself actually listening to you when you travel as well with your photography tours it you know anecdotal stories have massive value when you share them with friends but it's really easy to lose them um, and actually you know there's so much stuff in my head it'd be good to get out and have other people listen to yeah and I think I think as well that the fact that we've sort of we, we've got an idea we've got a framework as what we're going to talk about but can you just introduce <coughs> me to the story that you've got that you want to talk about tonight yeah that'd be a real pleasure so so I was going to take you through the first month or so of the very first trip I made to East Africa when I was in my late teens um, and I just left school. It was a bit of a thing those days. It still is to have a gap year, but I didn't want to just go and kind of get drunk in Magaluf or its equivalent in 1984. <laughs> I wanted to do something interesting. And originally, I'd been planning to travel to South America with a mate called Paul. Um, he launched me out, unfortunately. Uh, a really good friend of mine, Mark, his father was working for a development company in Ethiopia at the time. Um, he said he was going out there. Did I want to join him? I jumped at the chance. We we agreed I'd head out in the January of 1985. So I basically had a few months to earn some money and buy a flight. And that was it. Decision made. So you were working, I guess, um, uh, obviously trying to afford all of this at the same time. But I mean, what were you doing for a job? So um, I knew that there were various jobs going in London that one thing you know, there were big department stores I'd heard on the grapevine that took people, particularly during the Christmas period, like September leading up to kind of January, when they had massive extra sales. And they just needed people on what was then, I think, about £90 a week, which felt quite good in 1984 um, to me, who'd come out of school, didn't earn anything, um, to basically work in, in various departments. I went to Harrods, had a quick 10-minute interview, put my nicest posh accent on, <laughs> um, they said, yeah, we'll give you a job in the Christmas department where you can pack stuff to send to America and wheel goods in from the warehouse and we'll pay you 90 quid a week and oh, okay. you can leave at Christmas. So it's not a shop floor. It was... No. It was, it was warehouse. It was working behind the scenes in a tiny cupboard room with eight <laughs> other guys going underground to a warehouse in Hands Road, packing massive trolleys with goods and wheeling them back through things like the jewellery and the glass department, um, all the way up to floor three to the Christmas department, putting it out on the shelves, packing teddy bears to send to rich women in LA, that kind of stuff. So it's like, are you being served? Basically. <laughs> so <With a> twist. <laughs> so, you, so you're going to Ethiopia in what was about to become one of the worst famines Africa had seen in many years. And this is this is what fascinates me about this whole story was the fact that on one side of it you've got the, you know the Western world seeing this going on every day on TV, and uh, you're actually going to do the reverse of what everybody else would do, which is to go to Ethiopia. So that was the thing that was was really compelling to me, I think, because obviously right through that the latter stages of 1984 there was the the build-up on the news with, with Bob Geldof and him kicking off against the Thatcher regime, all the grain and butter mountains and the fact that, you know, this food couldn't be shared with, with, with people who were starving in Ethiopia. The whole Live Aid thing was building. 
um, we could hear the tune being played every day, every day through that Christmas period. <laughs> and and I, I was just lucky to get an opportunity to go out there, um, as I said previously, with a friend whose father worked for an organisation that basically developed solutions for sort of starving cattle and stock and their communities, because obviously nomadic tribes, if they lose their cattle, their goats, their sheep, they, they fail as communities. That was, that was his work, and he was based in, in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Um, so it was just a very, it, it, it just became, it was almost one of those kind of incidental clashes that happen in your life where you see this stuff happening on the news and opportunity lands in your lap to go out to the country where these major, major events are going on. Um, and you know so that 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 it was really just synergy between events and current affairs and the opportunity that landed in my lap because of a guy i knew at school so did it worry you the whole idea of actually going there <clears throat> so it didn't it didn't worry me because i was not going on my own and i knew i'd be landing in ethiopia and staying with mark's family uh, did, did it like emotionally worry you so so did it emotionally worry me it 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 made me question my motives for travelling to, to Ethiopia, I have to say, because the obviously the context was millions of people starving to death through lack of food and infrastructure. And I was basically going there ostensibly to have a six months good good fun time before university with a good friend of mine. So there was definitely a bit of a kind of moral quandary for me <laughs> around how do I address that and how do I as as and as a young man of nineteen I was acutely conscious of that and even to this day I'm pleased that I was because I felt that I was kind of at least aware um, and I had the opportunity to see things which many people wouldn't at that age which has no doubt helped to form my view of kind of global politics and having more sort of socialist sympathies than the other way and understanding the importance of sort of foreign aid and development programmes um, and charitable enterprises and all that kind of stuff because I've seen the end result of those on the ground yeah, where right. that can have positive impact. So let's land in Ethiopia. So um, take it from there. So um, the first weekend I arrived, it, it wasn't exactly a soft landing. It was it was a good landing, but it was, Jim, when you arrive, we're doing a three-week uh, basically trek around the hills surrounding Addis Ababa um, to raise a bit of money to contribute to the to the sort of campaigns for the famine. Um, so I literally landed, I think had some scrambled egg on toast, met Mark's dog Ike, which tried to bite my heels when we went in the house for the first time. And then we literally took off with tents and a rucksack and spent three nights walking and camping outdoors. But it was a really, really amazing introduction because the landscape sort of in and around Addis Ababa for, for again for someone who'd never really travelled much beyond some sort of like European two-week holidays whatever it was like entering the Genesis sort of chapter of the Bible like massive landscapes people generally dressed in sort of white shamas which are these sort of body length white cotton clothing that they wear um, coming across quite a lot of sort of Coptic communities who, who would often have a sort of priest with a staff and all this kind of stuff and it was literally like walking through the chapters of the bible you studied as a child well that's how i sort of perceived it um but it's significant because the coptic christianity is, is one of the oldest versions of christianity on the planet it dates back to like 400 a.d and you do get that sense of a kind of really embedded kind of ancient religion and culture with um with, with that in comparison to like a Christianity in the UK, did it feel as though it had a lot more meaning out there than it did for us in our little island in, in the Atlantic? So I think I think in a lot of countries I've travelled abroad, I'd say, yes, that's the case, where sort of religion and day-to-day -day culture are, are kind of more intrinsically sort of entwined, really. You know, I think it's fair to say in our culture, a lot of people would say they're Christian, but but as, as a cultural sort of activity, it's actually confined to quite a small number of people these days. Whereas someone like Addis, back, certainly back in 1984, come Sunday, the entire city dresses up in their best, cleanest, 
brightest white shammers and cloaks and 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 so on and parade out onto the streets to the to go to church etc and it's it's a major weekly event so when you're in Addis Ababa um how far away are you from any of the sort of the, the famine troubles that were going on in Ethiopia so so like any African city you've always got that relative wealth versus poverty around you and close by so for example where Mark's parents lived was a perfectly decent house but you had to walk through streets of you know people sitting and begging on the streets and lots of people wandering around who clearly were majorly impoverished and and animals everywhere etc etc but they were actual famine camps not that far from the city so we visited one called Deborah Brahan which I think was maybe a half day journey by four-wheel drive north of the city it was a relatively small famine camp it was one of the transit ones where people would be bussed in for from outer regions on a series of buses kept somewhere for a day or so and given immediate food and medical care and then moved on to longer term refugee camps elsewhere in the country but I mean that was a really that was a really sort of high impact moment for me because it it brought everything home in 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 a major way because it was literally sort of two three thousand people with nothing um who were very very ill and very malnourished literally sitting on the the side of a dirt road having been deposited from a bus waiting for the next transport Mm. um so yeah that was that was that was very that was very sort of moving is too trite a word but so um i i think uh if you, if you take, for example, the safety of modern travel, <clears throat> if you take, for example, that we all have mobile phones and mapping and anything that we need to be able to navigate our way around all these sorts of things. I, I mean, I remember a travel period where you had none of that and that's just the way life is and you just kind of got on with it. But I mean, when you're going out to something like that with such a cultural difference, I mean, a lot of people would find that pretty over, overwhelming. How did you... How did you? Th- what did you think of this age nineteen? So, so it's it's a really interesting question because for me it's partly about the, the media we use these days and how we process experience. So so back then, you know, we had those little funny little rice paper airmail letters that you could write, um, and I used to write one of those to my family every few weeks, and I'd write them like fifteen twenty pages of stuff. But I kept a journal the entire time I was there. And I'd been used to doing that anyway, because I kept a little diary from the age of like eight or nine anyway. Um, so I was used to writing stuff down all the time. Um, and I was really into reading and literature and writing anyway. So I kept a journal and that was the way I kind of processed it, cause, cause, because I put my thoughts down every day and tried to articulate what I was seeing and feeling and thinking. Um, and of course, it was before the age of smartphones where... You could take a load of pictures so easily and upload it to Facebook and put a post around it. It was completely the opposite. Either you you found the words and put them on paper yourself or you got your big clunky SLR film camera out, which I wasn't prepared to do around starving people because it just felt like I was being a voyeur and I always felt very uncomfortable doing that. Yeah, it's almost exploitive, isn't it? Kind of. The, the, uh, the thing I always felt was that when I mean I still feel it now when I travel but when I actually go to a country that's more complex when I land there I have to surrender myself completely to my environment I can't sort of wander around in some kind of bubble simulation but did it actually at any time sort of feel like that so I was quite lucky because I wasn't so much a tourist as someone that was had had an opportunity to stay with people, albeit they were expatriates, but staying with them locally in a place where they where they they had work and they had a function and they had a useful role to play. So, for example, I was in Addis about a few weeks. We we did trips to to to, to visit various places like I've described, but we also spent a couple of weeks down in the southern province on the northern Kenyan border called Sidamo, where uh, Mark's dad's company had a project to support a lot of ailing cattle and goat stock that belonged to the Barana people down there. And they're a nomadic people who, who move around with camels and materials to 
to, to make their buildings and dwellings and they and they live somewhere temporarily and then they move on when the animals have eaten everything but the project was built around providing sort of huge vats of molasses urea is a real high energy high sugar protein drink to these animals um and when you're in a place like that because you're helping out you're and you're living there you you become much more a part of that community albeit for a really short period of time rather than being a tourist that's passing through so we spent time with some of the Burana people going to visit their relatives villages which meant walking through the bush for hours on end and sitting in their sister's hut and drinking warm camel's milk you know on the dirt floor impeccable maintained little little dwelling and you know getting those sorts of insights and those sorts of experience was just completely mind-blowing as a 19 year old so you visited a commune can you explain a bit more about that yeah so so mark and i were massive reggae fans actually um which is not surprising <laughs> given how we like to entertain ourselves in the mid 80s and um when I got there, Mark being Mark, he's a very gregarious, outgoing guy. He was like, "Oh, Jim, we need to go. We need to go and like visit the Rastafarian commune." And I'm like, "What? What's that?" And he said, "Well, basically, it's this. It's this a group of buildings in Addis that was dedicated to the Rastafarian religion and cult um, by Haile Selassie when he was emperor. And for some quirk of fate, when the Mengistu communist government took over from Selassie and booted him out." Um, this place stayed and was kind of protected um, and there was basically a community of Rastas that lived there so so um, we went down there and spent you know a few a few days there and I never forget what was really interesting was that the the common ground that we found to talk about me being a posh 19 year old white boy from England <laughs> and, and a Rasta from Ethiopia was Bob Dylan's music and songs <laughs> because these guys were massive fans of Bob Dylan because he'd written that song The Hurricane ah. which was all about the black boxer who got stitched up for a crime he didn't commit right. and the fact that he wrote this protest song about it um, clearly appealed to these guys so we had we had like common ground to talk about and I knew I knew the tune and I was a massive Dylan fan at the same time so that was really fascinating <clears throat> um, but it was quite a it was quite a sort of patriarchal vibe in the place, um, and I never forget there was a moment when there was like, when the guy was like, you know, let, let, you know, do you fancy some milk and honey? Which is, a, you know, it's a classic line you hear in reggae tunes. And I was like, yeah, get on. And um, so, but so he snaps his fingers, and you know, a couple of ladies appear later on carrying like, you know, milk and honey on a tray and service kind of thing. But that was the vibe. It wasn't like we went to the kitchen together and got it out of the fridge. Um, so that was quite an insight, but and I, I can still remember those scenes today, like really, really vividly. Um, by the time we left the building, there's, there's less I could probably remember, but certainly as an experience overall. Um, and interestingly, when we travelled south to um, Moyali, which is the, the, the border town with northern Kenya, we went through a place called Shoshimani, which is also mentioned in quite a few reggae tunes, and that was a a whole community come town that was dedicated by Selassie to, to, to Rastafarians as well. You mentioned something in your notes about a Bob Geldof visit. Yeah, so so we were there. I didn't manage to see him, but we there was certainly a big buzz one, one week when he appeared and stayed at the Hilton Hotel in Addis, which is pretty much the only posh Hilton in, posh hotel in those days. Um, and that was obviously him doing his research and kind of becoming a bit of a global ambassador for the for famine relief and brewing up to the Live Aid event. Um, certainly that caused a major stir. And I'd been a big fan of the Boomtown Rats as well, so I was like <laughs> massively excited about that as well. Me too, actually. <clears throat> uh, explain the Red Terror and what it means. So, <clears throat> so the Red Terror was the name given to what happened when the Mengistu Marxist sort of revolution kicked Haile Selassie out of the country, which happened, I think, in the nine, early 1970s, I believe, sometime around then, or maybe the mid-70s. Um, and it was known as the Red Terror because the Red being linked to Marxist regime terror being it was a terror campaign 
when they basically just sort of murdered a ton of people and there were bodies piled high in the streets and mm. people had to walk around that on the way to work and it was like all these like shocking transitions from one from one you know very particular sort of political situational culture to another a bit like Pol Pot in Cambodia and unfortunately there have been many others and that was the one that they they termed the red terror in Ethiopia so you're in a camp you're wandering around inside a camp you're already feeling completely out of place by what's going on so just explain to me what are you seeing and what are you feeling so I think there was a there was initial an initial feeling of I think it would be too fake to say one's initial feelings are compassion or sympathy or anything like that. I think actually there's a sense of probably repulsion to begin with because you're you're in a place where you know people are not just starving but they they but they're they're seriously ill. They've got complications to do with malnutrition. There's a, there's a sort of fecal smell to the place. You know, people's faces are filthy, dirty. Many aren't wearing any clothes, particularly the youngsters. Um, the, the, the sort of side effects of malnutrition is often a pot belly. That sort of weird, ironic thing that a kid's got a got a full stomach, but in fact it's not. It's a it's a distended belly that's a sign of malnutrition. Um, I think like a mixed bag of of those immediate, almost kind of physical sensations of repulsion but mixed with that very very acute awareness that you're you're looking at people on the other side of a massive divide to yourself i think an important point to say is that we've been subjected to this since the early 80s mid 80s when all this happened and of course you're in an environment here where you haven't been subjected to any of this before it's not as though it's like oh yes this is what i've seen on tv you know this is all new isn't it it's it's new and i think there's a i think it's an interesting point you raise because i think we've become very desensitized to the suffering of other people in these typical sort of situations that still continue today i mean you know that there is impending famine in the sudan as we speak and what's happened to the, you know, to the Yemeni people has just been shocking um, in, in the war that's been going on in Yemen. Um, but I think going back to that experience of visiting that, that sort of transit camp for effectively what were famine refugees being moved from one place to the other was just that extreme destitution and that, that complete lack of kind of human decency that you, that you, that you, take for granted in our own culture being clothed being clean being fed um being mobile you know every everybody i saw was was sitting on the ground completely immobile and defeated and exhausted and in desperate need of more than just you know a quick bite to eat but but their whole lives were kind of on the verge of of being destroyed um and you sense that and you you feel it and you smell it and it's hot and it's dusty and there's no shade and it's just it's just it's just a grim place to be to be hanging out before your next move apart from anything else i always feel when i'm traveling that when i come across people who are begging for money from me for in whatever reason it's usually like something i'm sat at a restaurant and someone will come over or when I was in South Africa recently it was very much like that and I feel incredibly awkward just with one person standing next to me and they'll do this waiting game type thing and I and I get I feel more and more and more awkward as I you know as we sit almost subconsciously examining the divisions between us but I mean to be faced with something that that you've seen on that scale must have been I think you have a you 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 also have a very acute sense of or certainly I did of just feeling really really uncomfortable being there and witnessing it not not just in a kind of how can how can the west let this happen in a country which is only 10 hours on a on an aircraft to fly to it's not that far with modern travel how can this go on and not be sort of um, fixable? Fixable, but equally on a personal level, 
it, it's just that sense of standing on the outside of some horrendous acute experience that other people are having and there's actually very little you can do about it and you are just a temporary witness uh, and there is a danger in your head that you are just being a voyeur and you can very easily walk away from it which is a really uncomfortable feeling um yeah turning your back on it and walking away i mean that must be such an odd thing to have to go through yeah i think you i think you i think certainly the experience i had was you know you i I guess you made excuses for for yourself in that you've gone up there as part of a part of a group of of ref colleagues and um you know development people that were there to to sort of help and support and ensure that medical supplies were provided in that immediate moment that the people were there before they moved on and and that you were part of that help being offered i mean in reality i wasn't i was baggage on on going along with them which but but i mean i I guess the way i dealt with it was to tell myself you're having an experience that is worthwhile because you can tell other people and you can learn from it and it can shape how you think and feel and view the world and how you sort of chart your own path through it and what becomes important in terms of you know what you do in your career etc etc and actually make decisions which are valuable you know and worthwhile so so I think despite the anxiety about being a voyeur in in a very sensitive situation I do remember telling myself this is a useful formative and educational experience and actually I know I know that those experiences shaped my my initial sort of young political thoughts and feelings about how I should navigate the world and do a career where actually I'm contributing to other people and adding value rather than just looking out for sort of monetary worth and my own pleasure or what have you and and it certainly shaped my political views and still to this day you know it, it I'm someone who has a a mindset that, you know, wealth should be distributed for those that don't have it. Because just a modicum of wealth for some of us is better than nothing. And when you've seen people who have absolutely nothing, that reevaluates what you see as being rich. Yep. Another interesting fact actually about we we went up there with some guys from the RAF because it was during during the famine, part of the relief was that the RAF loaned Hercules transport planes to the Ethiopian government and they used to take off from Addis and drop these massive packages of food um, in remote areas in the Northern Highlands for people to access food. But they'd also brought over a load of like small footballs and toys and games. And there was quite a lot of criticism, I remember, in the press in England before I left around why is money being spent on this stuff and these gimmicks and people just need food. But, and it was a really good learning curve for me because these guys were like, actually, um, these kids need something to do. They've got nothing. If you, if you give a bunch of African boys a football, they've got entertainment for a day. Yeah. And so the way they thought through that, I thought was really great. So, so I remember going up there and we had a pile of footballs in the boot and we distributed those and there was like, you know, massive glee and joy, which was really good to see, yeah. you know, from kids that really had absolutely nothing. And the RAF guys were like massively dedicated. Just a know. just an anecdote that I can add into that. When I was doing my recce of Namibia again in Africa thing, I was uh, on the on the west coast uh, at the Zila ship, shipwreck, which was a big Angolan uh, trawler that smacked into the. Uh, well, apparently I got told that. Uh, they got rumbled by the authorities for fishing illegally and then they all dived overboard and then eventually the ship just ran aground on the coast and it when i was there there was a whole load of guys who were i mean it shows you the desperation of it but they were just selling rocks they're still there now as in like there's still sets of people they sell these little like quartz and different colored rocks and they're not they're not, they're not you know very valuable or anything but they just try to sell them to tourists and when i was there uh, we got the football out and it was it was England versus South Africa, because that was Scott and Greg who I was with, versus Namibia, all playing football. And as soon as we got that football out, we played football for like 45 minutes between all of us. Didn't know anybody, but the football just immediately connected everyone. And it was such a laugh. Like, so, and I don't even play football. It was great fun. And so. it's, it's, it, it, it's injecting that 
bit of goodness and joy where you can when the opportunity arises. I just kind of thought that was fantastic. Mm. Um, I mean, the other thing that was was quite sort of ironic, really, was being being a white person in a in a in an African country did give me insights into that whole sort of how it is to be different, really. Um, did you feel really different? So. I certainly felt very conspicuous and there were certainly, I mean, you know, much of the time you'd, you'd move around Ethiopia, you'd have gangs of children running after you shouting Ferengi, Ferengi, which means foreigner in Amharic. Um, and I had the same in other countries in, in East Africa where you tend to be called Mazungu, which means basically sort of foro, foreign oddity or words <laughs> to that effect. And um, But you don't take it as a racist term, you just take it as like, well, yeah, these kids probably haven't seen anyone like me before in their lives. When I went to Volvis <coughs> Bay in Namibia as well, I remember the, uh, Greg and I, Greg was the assistant I run my trips with out in Namibia, he, he and I wandered around Volvis Bay and I, I literally was astounded at the amount of people who were just staring at these two tall white boys, well, white men. Uh, Greg is six foot six and I'm six foot three. And I got to really understand what it must have been like to be black standing on the on the seafront at Exmouth in Devon when a black family or an Indian family, you know, stood on that beach in the late 80s and everybody would be staring at, the, at these black faces. Exactly that. And I, I never forget when we were in Sadamo doing that work for a couple of weeks, we went and sat in a bar one evening to have some of the local local honey beer, which they which they also use, um, they think they call it Tej, I think, if my memory serves me correctly. But we were sitting there in this bar, and it's notorious, this beer, because it doesn't taste very strong. But the advice is you should never sit down and drink it, because when you try and stand up again, you fall over. And it's better to stand and drink it, because then you get a measure of the effect it's having on your legs. But anyway, that's another story. But there was a little girl who must have been six or seven who came and sat in the bar with us and we were the only like three white guys there you know and the rest were local Ethiopians and this girl's absolutely spellbound by the colour of my hair and my slightly hairy forearms (laughs) and spent the entire two or three hours we were there stroking my head and my arms (laughs) in complete fascination and wonder and it was it was wonderfully tender and and kind of completely non-aggressive inquisitive yeah and it yeah. was just it was just extraordinary just and and you know me thinking this she, she and they were saying she's never seen anyone that looks like you before that's why she's so fascinated but it gave me that real song strong sense of how isolated we were in places like that how completely out of the way they are and separated from the world that i knew in the west you yeah know? Uh, and that that we could say, I mean, a lot of that is now gone because of mobile phone communication and everything, isn't it? Completely. Uh, it says here, <laughs> working through the entire Hawkwind back catalogue. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the one of the strangest sort of side side stories of my experience in Addis was both Mark and I had had have and still do good broad musical tastes, um, and while we spent some of the time hanging out with Rastas and talking about Bob Dylan. Um, he you, just, you, you were riding around in a silver machine. We were basically sitting in his house and, and kind of working through the Hawkwind back catalogue and listening to that, which reared its ugly head again, actually, when we were in Kenya months later and like sailing an Arab Dow through these mangrove swamps and swamps and someone had a had a little tape machine and they were playing um, a Hawkwind tune on the boat there as well, which was pretty weird. But yeah, so, so we listened to a lot of Hawkwind. Oh, fantastic. I mean... When um, I mean, can I just make it slightly more serious now and just say, so when you actually went and and saw a famine camp, I mean, I mean, what, just describe what you were seeing and what and what was happening. So I think the words that come to mind predominantly are words like sort of desolation and heat and and almost not depravity because that's unfair, but the situation that famine puts people in is desperation is complete and utter desperation and having and having and owning nothing more but did um, you did you just feel as though you were completely helpless in, in all of this as though you were just this strange sort of documentary so i guess i was lucky enough to be like i said with the ref people and and groups of expatriates that were there to try and do something 
you know, to, to sort of mediate and make a difference to the to the suffering. So that probably helps a little bit. But you cert you certainly feel one of the first things you feel is like I'm so massively lucky and privileged because I'm going to get a car and, in a car and drive away from this in two hours and go and you know have a nice meal. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about that. That's that's kind of that's kind of how it is. You know, the the best thing you can do is be aware and learn and do something about it and contribute when you can. One of the things I always feel is whenever you're brought into any situation like that, whether it's from poverty or from people begging when you're abroad um, and things like that, is I always, always go into these you know periods of blank self-absorption, trying to evaluate everything in my head of uh, how I am and you know what what I'm what I'm doing here and. I don't know. I, I go through a lot of. Emotions. I mean, I'm the same because there's. <clears throat> I think there's there's a real there's a real danger about how white people engage with those situations. So you don't enter into that really dangerous ground of thinking you're some kind of white savior, you know. Which a lot of, a lot of people make that mistake, you know. There's particularly people with fame and who are celebrities think they can sort of go off and do some goodness, and it's probably really genuine a lot of it. Where, where it's coming from when people do that but but it's it's the perception and it, it's the long tail of your involvement that really matters I mean for me it was it was I kept telling myself this is a really important education for me I've had a really privileged upbringing um, and I'm now being exposed to something which is I hope going to shape the way I view and think about the world but in a way which is without being patronizing kind of sympathetic and compassionate you know to to, to what goes that goes on elsewhere and i think that shapes your politics as well yeah. black mambas under the tent what does that even mean well um so if you've ever seen um i can't remember the name of the film black mambas really really dangerous one of the most dangerous snakes in the world i think they basically paralyze your nervous system and kill you within like two minutes of a bite um because they, you end up being asphyxiated. And they're quite big beasts. They can go up to a metre and a half long. And I knew there were black members and green members in the area where we were camping in Sedano. Um, we'd not come across any until one morning someone in the camp freaked out when they woke up because they were convinced there was something under their tent. They thought it was a big stick, but then it moved. Um, and one of, the, one of the, the African guys went to check it out and sure enough, it was a black member. So it was lucky they found it when they did because, you know, had it been an hour later and the member had moved and they'd moved at the wrong time, it could have ended up very differently. Um, so was this anything to do with the Barana people? <clears throat> so, yeah, the Barana people live down in the Sadamo province. Uh, they're one of two or three different peoples that live down there. Um, they're nomadic. Um, they... They travel with camels. They set up camp in different locations for periods of time, and that was another real eye opener for me, for me to sort of be close to the to a sort of nomadic group of people and look at the way they live and the sort of challenges that they had. You know, like kind of finding water, for example. That was that was really fascinating. Once when we we went off to collect water from the same waterhole where they were. And these waterholes tend to be like, they, you know, they start on the desert floor and they go down like anything up to 30, 40 feet, if not more. Um, and often there's probably like a tree next to it because there's water there. And they create like steps down the, the inside bank on the roots of the tree. Then you have three or four people stationed all the way down to the water. And they literally just throw buckets all the way up the chain to someone who then chucks it in the massive gourd on, strapped onto the camel send the next bucket down the guy at the bottom finish fills it up sends it back up the chain and they just do that until they filled up all their all their water vessels amazing hard work God, I bet the um uh i i guess the the interaction that you must have had with these sorts of people uh must have felt quite good as well as though you were pitching in with things rather than just always feeling as though you're an observer so i think so and i've and i've kind of I've struggled with that actually when I've travelled in years after that particular experience because but even on that six month trip there were definitely times Mark and I were tourists you know you like to call yourself a traveller because you think that's cooler in some way but actually you're kind of a tourist because you're there and you don't live there and you're there to visit and enjoy yourself um, 
and I was always a bit conscious when I travelled in later years when in, in Asia and places that actually I wanted to be doing something constructive in those countries rather than just travelling and bumming around all the time which is why when I got an opportunity to go and um, do a bit of work in Uganda three or four years ago with the Academy Trust I was working with that was just absolute like gold dust for me because it was a chance to go and do some work that was contributing to a community uh, and I'll tell you about that another day because that's a whole different story but so so I think yeah amazing experiences but when you look back you have to accept that it, that they were sort of traveling tourist experiences and actually the opportunities in Ethiopia to be involved and do things was richer as a result yeah I could completely understand that actually it's I think more interaction you have with people, the, the better things are. When you spend more of your time it, totally engaged in the environment and in the people that, you, that you're around, the, the, the great, you, you know, you pull out of it. One of the things I remember when I was uh, working for another company doing photography tours was that one of the things that came back was that David likes the company of strangers more than he does the people on his tour this was a particularly bad tour I want to, I want to mention that went very wrong because the people seemed to think they were in some kind of simulation they were just in this kind of bubble tourist bubble and I spend all of my time when I travel trying to in integrate with everybody as much as possible because that for me in a photography sense gives the better photographs and I think that this is this is a lot of the problem now is that um, I mean we've seen the whole way that people just want to take photos of themselves in key locations the selfie generation but at the same time the more you get involved with all of this stuff the more memorable all those experiences are and therefore the more you build I think you build your confidence and you build yourself as a person who travels it's, it's, it's vitally important stuff isn't it and I think you I think you actually have I think you have better and more unique experiences as a result because you're more likely to build friendships albeit they might be temporary and and find yourself in situations that you definitely wouldn't if you sat within your tourist bubble on your metaphorical tourist bus with your metaphorical tourist guide you know that that's why I've, I've kind of really enjoyed travel on my own or just with one other person quite a lot because I feel like you can get under the skin of the place and you can get off the beaten track and, and you know, it's really interesting when I travel in Africa because everyone used the Lonely Planet Africa on a shoestring book. That original one's now like 40, 50 years old. Right. Um, but but, but the, the, the sort of pitfall of those books is that you follow what's in the book. So you end up going to all the places everyone else goes and they're all there when you go because they're all reading the book. And you tend not to find experiences that are unique to your own... To, to, to your own decision making around where you go and what you do um, so I actually forced myself to travel on my own on, on later visits to East Africa and just see what happened down the end of the road without planning anything and often mm. had you know the, the, the most extraordinary experiences doing that and one of the things you did was cross into northern Kenya yeah so we the, the plan was that we would start in Ethiopia and then kind of go and visit some other African countries we actually ended up travelling for six months around seven or eight other countries but the but but the first route was straight due south back through Sadamo southern highlands into northern Ethiopia, northern Kenya so was that massively different so um the first bit you hit when you get to northern Kenya is is the Chalbi desert which is just a flat landscape of sort of pebbles and rock with the old emu and you know mirages and that's about it um, and it's a long bus journey of like at least a day or so um, and that in itself was a great experience because it was a rattly old bus and getting across the border was of an Ethiopian Marxist regime was quite interesting uh, having to sort of prove who we were and why the hell were we there because they never saw long-haired young men with rucksacks going over the border so there were question marks over who we were but that was fine, we got through that. Um, and then we spent a day or so chewing Mirar with loads of Somali guys on buses. What's that? So Mirar's like a sort of, they call it chat or mirror. Um, it's like a it's like a herb and you chew the you chew the bark of the stems. It's like a very mild coca leaf or or amphetamine basically, which staves off hunger and keeps you really chatty. 
Um, so when they're travelling, they all chew tons of it because it keeps them going and they can have a good old chat. So we just chatted to loads of Somali geezers for about a day and a half, <laughs> chewing these bark. <laughs> so the journey into into northern Kenya, what were you? Where were you headed? I suppose is what so, I'm saying. <clears throat> yeah, we were basically like we we kind of been in Ethiopia for a while. Mark had been there a lot longer than me actually, so I think he was he was due a bit of a change, and I was just up for travelling anywhere because it was all new to me. So the, our plan was that we we would head into Kenya. The first stopover was a place called Marsabit, which is this crazy town, like, like on top of a sort of conical hill that sits up out of the, out of the landscape. Um, and it's really green because it rains quite a lot there because it's sitting up high. And sure enough, it absolutely hammered when we were there. And we couldn't find the bus the next morning when, when we got up because all the roads had turned into rivers and we couldn't orient ourselves. So this is the complete polar opposite. Complete, being massive, in... complete massive polar opposite. And, and then eventually we did find the bus and we moved on. But And then we ended up getting down to Nairobi, which is a crazy, busy African city. A lot of history, but quite sort of white colonialist kind of history and stuff. And from there, we headed to the East Coast because we fancied going to Mombasa and hitting the beach and eating loads of pineapples and mangoes. <laughs> so the reflection on getting into Kenya from what you've done in, in Ethiopia? It became, for that period of time, a bit more sort of, let's go and have a holiday. Quite a relief then. Yeah, definitely. Um, but still fascinating at every step of the way. Because we were, you know, for ourselves as guys who were pretty young, we were, we were breaking new ground every day. And had no idea what we were facing, had no real idea how long stuff was going to take to get from A to B. It was very much kind of suck it and see, which was really exciting because it meant every day you wake up somewhere fresh and somewhere new. Um, and, and like I mentioned, the, this, this kind of lonely planet guide, some of the places we went, you could look stuff up other places. It wasn't even in the book, which was, which was, which was great because that was the eye opener we needed was kind of you know, find your own way, use your own wits. I always feel whenever I travel that the more extreme the the trip, the more complicated things are. At the time, it doesn't feel particularly nice, but it always feels more memorable than anything. When you've got this feeling as though you are about to lose out or something's really not going the way you expect it to go, a lot of the time that is, that's where the real magic can happen or something Absolutely. incredible. Yeah, I mean, I never forget my first visit to this place in Nairobi that we'd heard about. We stayed at this hotel called the Iqbal Hotel, which was run by some Muslim guys. And um, there was, a, there was a, a notorious bar nearby called the Green Bar. Um, and we had no idea that it was basically where all the prostitutes went to pick up business. People had just said, oh, yeah, you should go to the green bar. It's great. So we thought, yeah, great, we'll go to the green bar. So we rocked up and um, two white guys again in, 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 you know, a sea of Kenyan faces, etc. And we sat down to have our first beer. And literally within 30 seconds, I must have had about six pairs of hands down my trousers <laughs> i'm not joking like right down my trousers where they shouldn't have gone without my permission um and we very quickly made it clear that we weren't there for that sort of business that we were there to drink beer um but the great thing was we met this this woman there who was obviously the madame of all these young girls and she quickly sussed out that a we were pretty young that we weren't there to you know pay her money for her for her products as it were her young women um and that we maybe needed watching out for because maybe we were a little bit naive so so she often used to walk us back to our hotel after a night in the bar to check we were all right which was really lovely cause mother she, cause she was quite maternal but she was also like a massive pimp it's just bizarre so whenever we went back to Nairobi which often we did because it's a bit of a transit route if you go to the coast and bath and off somewhere else to Uganda or something we'd always head down to the green bar and and, and see our surrogate mum and have a few beers so let me just fast forward uh, I suppose I'm I'm thinking of a conclusion but I'm just imagining now that you know live aid the uh you know everything that had been going on was um I, I guess it would have been must have been quite a bizarre double take to be 
seeing what was happening in the media back in the UK afterwards, and, and I mean, and the legacy that went on. I mean, it's you know must remind you every time you you hear that tune and say say completely. I mean, I just I just remember it being a a, a really kind of weird synergy of quite global historic events like culturally but also politically and obviously you know on a human level for the people in Ethiopia because the famine was unprecedented in scale Um, but equally the way that pop culture galvanized engagement from people on a massive scale both in America and the UK for those concerts and the numbers that watched on TV was just phenomenal and it was a real it was a real turning point actually in how popular culture can galvanise political will and actually send a good message to communities about what the right thing is to do. Mm. So, to, but, And to have gone out there and seen stuff as well, like I said earlier, was kind of, for me, the most formative thing was, was it shaping my, my understanding of how the world really operates in reality outside of the bubble of the, of the developed West. I mean, that must have been a hell of an education at 19 years old. That's... Yeah, major education. I mean, I'd had a pretty good education up until then that, a bit, that was quite expensive at a nice boarding school. And then I, I got thrown out of my boarding school for a while for various reasons. Well, one, one reason in particular. And, and, and that was a good education. And this was like <laughs> stage three. It was even better. So actually, by the time I came home and went to university in 1985 and I was heading for 20 years old, I'd covered quite a lot of ground, actually. Um, but yeah, so so, but to be less kind of facetious about that first that first time in, in Ethiopia, that was that was a very seminal experience because of that because of that kind of experience of seeing the famine up firsthand and understanding what was behind all the razzmatazz back in England. You know, that was that was that was a really good learning curve. I, I recently watched Apocalypse Now. And he was always writing a journal on a boat, like going up these uh, these rivers and, you know, talking about the, the madness of it all and things like that. And, and there are times when you travel when you kind of feel a little bit like that, isn't there? And yeah, so, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I remember my, one of the books I remember my English teacher talking a lot about was Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which, of course, Apocalypse Now is based on. Okay. Um, so if you've not read it, it's worth a read because that's an absolute English literary classic, and it is about it is about people becoming insane because of getting drunk on power in in sort of dark places, if you like, mm. um, which is the, the the Brando character, isn't it? Um, and you know, it's not dissimilar in parts of Africa that that sort of you know there are places there where sort of you know brutality comes very clashes right up to kind of extreme tenderness I think that was the other thing I remember really vividly around my experiences of traveling there was seeing really extreme tenderness human tenderness but the most appalling brutality as well it was it seemed to be kind of often one or the other depending on the context of the country you're living you're you're sort of traveling through well Jim thank you very much Pleasure. That was really interesting. Pleasure.